Hi everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. So today I'm very excited to have Kirk Sowell on the line and for those that don't know he's a political risk analyst and the writer um, of Inside Iraqi Politics which is a bi-weekly publication which covers the latest developments in Iraq, latest news, so we will definitely post a link to that website for our listeners. And first of all, thank you for being back on the show, Kirk. Okay, well, thank you for having me. Well, today we had a lot of excitement in the Iraqi parliament. Today is September 8th, 2014, so depending on when our listeners will be listening to this show, um, they'll have the date correct, but I want to hand it over to you, Kirk, because I know looking at your Twitter feed and talking to you before recording, you have been following this development in the parliament um, very closely. So give us a little overview of what happened today earlier. Okay, sure. And uh, thank you for having me. Uh, you'll need to bear with me a little bit from my voice. I'm recovering from a cold. Um, but, uh, okay, so this is, this is what happened. Uh, the prime minister-designate, uh, Haider al-Abadi, uh, he had up until uh, Wednesday, constitutionally, that was the deadline, for him to present his uh, cabinet, his uh, slate of ministers, uh, to parliament for approval. Uh, and, he, and he did it. Um, it was late Monday night, uh, Baghdad time. Uh, they met um, about, it was shortly before 9 when they got started, 9, 9 p.m., um, and then they finished, um, I'm, I'm guessing it was 10 something, uh, you know, something, someone after like 1030, something like that around there. Um, and it was just, a, it was an absolute circus. Um, it was, it was an extremely fragile coalition. Uh, he was changing ministers names literally at the last minute. Groups were walking in and out and whatnot. Uh, and so, uh, we're going to have to see how they fill it out, but it was a real mess. So what we talk about how this all started. So we have a body who was nominated. We have Maliki who stepped down recently. And then this countdown to the actual vote. So why don't we backtrack a little bit and look at the moments where all this started taking place. Sure. Okay. So Iraq had parliamentary elections on April 30th. And then the way the system works is that you have uh, – the process of appeals for the results, and then once the results are, are approved by the judiciary, within 15 days, Parliament has to meet and then elect a speaker, a speaker in a Parliament, a deputy speaker, um, two deputy speakers, um, and then uh, within 30, and, and then also um, elect a president, um, and then the president has uh, 15 days, so it's it's uh, 15 days to to nominate a, a prime minister designate, uh, and then the prime minister designate, once nominated, um, has 30 days to present his cabinet. Um, and so uh, Parliament elected Salima Jabouri uh, on Salima Jabouri, a Sunni Arab from Diyala, on July 1st. And then um, later that month elected uh, Fouad Masoum. Uh, occurred from the uh, um, Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. This is the party of uh, former President Jalal Talabani. Um, and then he nominated Abadi. Now, a key non 
constitutional non-electoral event was the fall of Mosul uh, on June June 10th. Uh, that was really really key. The um, the uh, insurgent, basically led by the jihadist Islamic State organization, um, the, the disintegration of the Iraqi army in the north, um, and the fall of Nineveh uh, and the, the city of Mosul. Uh, the main Iraqi city in the north, the main Arab Iraqi city in the north. Uh, this basically destroyed uh, whatever was left of Maliki's credibility. Uh, one could debate whether he should have had any credibility at that point or not. Um, but to whatever extent he had credibility, uh, it was as a commander-in-chief, as a leader of the nation, it was completely destroyed um, after that. So... There was then, you know, the the, uh, the uh, push to uh, find an alternative, and it, it t- took a lot of pressure, uh, frankly. Uh, but ultimately, this led to uh, Maliki being forced to step aside um, in favor of Abadi. Uh, and just a note about who Abadi is: um, like Maliki, he's a longtime member of the Islamic Dawah Party. Uh, he's an engineer by training. Unlike Maliki, he, he uh, spent his exile years in Britain, whereas Maliki spent his in Iran and then even more in Syria. Uh, and then Abadi came back into Iraq after 2003, was Minister of Communications under uh, the Coalition Provisional Authority, um, uh, was an advisor to Prime Minister Joffrey, uh, and then was chairman successively of the Economic Committee committee, and then the Finance Committee in the Iraqi Parliament in the uh, 2006 to t- 2010 and then the 2010 to 2014 uh, Iraqi Parliaments. So he was, he, and then he was very, very briefly elected Deputy Speaker. Um, this, you know, again, uh, back in July. Uh, and, and then so he was nominated and he, he is now is now Prime Minister uh, Hader al-Abadi. So prior to him becoming Prime Minister today, I guess you could say, pretty much designated today, um, elected, should I say. So when he was Prime Minister designate, a lot of the press was saying that he was hailed for having a calm, balanced discourse in dealing with the crisis that's taking place in the country. Can we look at this idea a bit? I mean, how do you see that? Do you see him being calm and cool, so to speak? Or is there a different side of him as well? I think that's true. Uh, I don't think there does seem to be a real personality difference between Abadi and Maliki. Uh, But it's important to stress that there's not much, if any, real ideological, political difference between Abadi and Maliki. Um, to the extent that Abadi has a track record as you know, chairman of the Finance Committee, for example, he has a track record on issues related to the Kurds, Kurdistan regional government, and then their energy energy uh, export policy. And his, his his position has always been supporting Maliki. And so he supported, for example, the, the cutoff of uh, budget payments to the Kurds back in January and so on. Uh, and, and he's never been one who's pushed for a different line. There's no, there's no evidence, no public. He has no public record of that. So he does have a different demeanor. And you know, unlike Maliki, who lived in a clandestine world in exile, 
Um, Abadi was a professional engineer. He was a very successful. He had his own engineering firm and was very successful in Britain. Um, and you know, as you know, had British uh, citizenship. It appears that he still has British British citizenship. This this came up in the session about how he ought to give that up. It appears that he has not surrendered it yet. Um, but uh, he, so he basically lived in the open world, and that's the core difference. Uh, but in terms of substantive policy, uh, you know, again, these men are both from the same party. They're both in the same wing of the same party. There's not a huge difference between the two of them in that regard. So looking at that last statement of yours, does that mean we basically have a replacement Maliki, do you think? It's too early to say. I would not want to condemn the man um, because that would be a condemnation. If he turns out he's uh, – Maliki has virtually destroyed the country. Um, his legacy is one of complete failure. Um, so that that would be a very, very strong statement to make. So I would not want to condemn a baddie by saying that. However, <clears throat> however, it is worth uh, you know noting if you look at the balance of this of this coalition, uh, it is you know very the, the new cabinet is very heavily dominated um, you know by Shia Islamist. Uh, you know they they have many more that they have. There's some independents. Uh, they're actually slightly less. For my brief count, uh, my quick count, it looks like they have like 40 percent. Um, and then there appear to be five ministers from the main Sunni group, which is called the Union of National Forces, and then two uh, from the Kurds, and then then a few uh, who from minorities or independents. Um, but. The, the power positions are, are certainly with with Shia Islamist. Uh, also, they did not they failed to fill the defense ministry and the interior ministry. This is really really huge, and we can we, we should discuss this in more detail. Um, but the the talks with the Kurds broke down, so there were you know discussions and whatnot. The Kurds made certain demands, and again I can go into detail on that if you wish. Uh, but the bottom line is that. The Kurds made their demands. Abadi refused to agree to their demands. Um, and so the Kurds walked away. And then they ended up first boycotting and then coming in and, and then apparently um, not voting. Um, given the total number of votes, <clears throat> it looks like they didn't vote for it. Uh, they did show up and one Kurdish member of parliament, Allah Talabani, uh, spoke briefly. But she spoke up to complain, not to support um, the government. Uh, likewise, the Sunnis, they they had all sorts of demands. Abadi appears to have met none of them, uh, but they just gave in anyway because they had no alternative. Um, in this last election, Shia Islamists won an outright majority of the seats. So uh, the, the political balance of power is with them. Um, Abadi, Abadi's main struggle was keeping the Shia block itself stable. That was a lot of, that was more difficult um, than I expected it to be. Um, but that would, that was his main problem tonight uh, was keeping the Shia base itself. And then the, the Sunnis and the Kurds can basically just take or leave uh, what he offers them. That's basically the situation. So looking at what you just described, it sounds like the Sunnis 
they probably didn't get what they want. The Shiite, maybe. How to? What's the divide here between the two different groups? Well, I mean, the, the Shia parties. Okay, the the Shia the the, na- the formal name is the, the National Alliance. That's the name of the Shia bloc. And then there are different parties and blocks that make it up. Um, and you know, the Shia Islamists they all come together and identify together in terms of nominating a prime minister. Their priority was to make sure that the prime minister would be a Shia Islamist. But, <clears throat> of course, there are many con- conflicts in between them. Um, and with Maliki's state of law coalition effectively having broken up, um, there's no longer any one Shia party or bloc that's much stronger than the other. There's um, actually basically six that are all roughly about the same, and then there's a couple smaller ones. So there was a fight, for example, over the security ministries, um, the beta organizations, Hadi al-Amari uh, wanted to be defense minister, and then that was blocked. And then he wanted to be interior minister, and that was blocked. Understand that Amari is basically an Iranian agent. Um, the, the beta organization is the reincarnation of the beta core, uh, a, a, a militia, an Iraqi militia created in Iran back in 1982. And this is all that Amari has ever done, basically, is, is work for Iran. And he tows Iran, Iran's political line. He's a militia leader. So having him as the defense minister or as the minister of interior, which oversees the federal police, uh, this is very controversial. And ultimately, this is the reason why uh, they were not able to confirm a minister of the defense or interior. Now, the others, the others pretty much got all of the, the other one that didn't get what they wanted. There was a fight between former prime minister Ibrahim al-Jafari um, and uh, former deputy prime minister Hussein al-Shafristani over who was going to be foreign minister. And Jafari was ultimately elected. So former prime minister Ibrahim al-Jafari um, was elected foreign minister. And then the other parties sort of get more or less got what they wanted. So the Islamic Supreme Council of Iraq got the oil ministry and the transportation ministry. Uh, the Fadila party got the uh, justice ministry. It's a new person. Um, the, the old justice minister, uh, Hassan al-Shemri, was mainly known for having introduced this uh, new Shia family law legislation that many people feared would you know, allow for nine-year-old girls to be married and, and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> they they supported Abadi, and so they retained the justice ministry. The, the more significant issue, though, really, like if we're just talking about the Shia, is that you know one of the major problems is is the need for prison reform um, and and reform of the legal system. And you know, Falila, of course, is not at all interested in reform. They've never shown any interest in dealing with these problems. So the fact that Fadila has retained the justice ministry is is bad news. Uh, but you know, broadly speaking, uh, the Shia, I mean, the Shia Islamists—they're the majority. They're the ones who elected Abadi. They're the ones who made Abadi's election inevitable. So there's a family squabble. Individual factions were unhappy, but broadly speaking, they're happy enough. Now, when we talk about the Sunni factions, it's a completely different situation. And there are a number of different factions, but there are only three that are really worth talking about in any significant level. Uh, one is called the Mutahidun, led by Osama al-Nujafi, the former Speaker of Parliament. 
Another is called the Arab Coalition, led by uh, Salah Mutlaq, former deputy prime minister, and who was he was just re-elected deputy prime minister. Um, and, and the other is a group called the Nationalist Coalition, led by Ayat Alawi, who himself is Shia, but most of the he's a secular Shia with a Baathist base, and um, most of his his MPs are, are Sunni, or else um, you know former Baathist uh, secular Shia. Um, and then Nujafi and Mutlaq's group, along with some smaller groups, joined to form what's called the Union of Iraqi for excuse me, Union of National Forces. And I'll call it the UNF, the UNF for for short. Um, this group got together, and their their ba- basic line, all of them, including Alawi's group, was demands of the Sunni provinces. They weren't looking for positions. They were, you know, the demands for substantive reform. So, for example, repeal of debathification, uh, amnesty, because there are a huge number of Sunnis that are uh, innocent Sunnis that are in prison. Uh, no one really knows how many th- these people are innocent or guilty. The legal system is a complete mess. So amnes- an amnesty law is one of the demands. Um, there are other demands like more Sunni representation in the security services, um, and so on. And pre- I mentioned prison reform earlier. Uh, that's you know that that's an important issue. Um, so they had these demands, and Abadi basically you know refused to make promises on any of them, and they caved anyway. Um, they're in a very weak position. They just sort of caved anyway, and there was a sort of a tempest in a teapot. This is just to give you an idea of how messed up they are. Uh, they have had the Sunni leadership has had their their negotiating team uh, essentially implode twice. Once back in May after the election, there was a major scandal where one of the Sunni MPs went on TV and he started. He said, "Well, there was an." He described what he, what he put as an as an auction for MPs. In other words, one of the Sunni leaders, Jamal Karbouli. Uh, was buying MPs, you know, paying them money, offering them money um, to support Maliki and form the new government. This was back when Maliki was expected to possibly be reelected. Um, and that caused a massive scandal. But then that died down after Mosul because people were distracted and other things. Uh, and then this last Saturday, just a few days ago, they had a, another implosion where it turned out that a member of the Sunni negotiating team, Salman al-Jumeili, um, was allegedly, everyone seemed to believe this, trying to use his negotiating uh, position, his his position on the negotiating team, to get a ministry for himself, even though he had failed to win re-election. Uh, so this this um, you know this cost a, a massive amount of, of controversy, and they were you know then again forced to um, forced to basically abolish uh, their um, negotiating team and reform it, and and yeah, and then on Sunday, New Jaffe meets with Jaffari, uh and then they reach a compromise. But what it boils down to is that the Sunni leaders simply capitulated. They didn't. They were completely unorganized. They were a total mess, uh, and they really had no leverage. So they just gave in. Well, on that thought, and looking at these controversies. How can this new government integrate the Sunnis into Iraqi politics? It just seems like it's quite a mess. And with what you just described, that all makes it that much harder. 
Well, I mean, that's I'm glad you raised this question because uh, this, this is an important point, but it's a, a little bit misunderstood. Often you will hear government officials, especially U.S. officials, uh, and, and also sometimes journalists talk about the need for inclusiveness and a need for an inclusive government and whatnot. Uh, but this is really not the problem. I mean, Maliki's government was extremely inclusive. There were, um, you know, Sunnis held most of the, the economic ministries. They had electricity. They had the industry ministry. They had finance. They had agriculture. Um, so, you know, there, there were more ministers from Ambar, the Sunni province of Ambar, than any other single province. Um, so inclusiveness was not really a problem. Uh, it had, had more to do with sort of misrule of the country. Maliki sort of concentrated security control in his own hands. So you could say there was an inclusiveness issue with the security services to some degree. Uh, but in just in terms of having Sunnis in the government and in the political process, that was not an issue at all. Um, so, you know, and here again, and I, I should note that Jumaili, who was the subject of this massive uh, cor- corruption scandal last Saturday, he was just elected um, planning minister um, today. And this, he, he's, he's now the new planning minister. Uh, so he did, in fact, get his ministry. Good for um, him. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is a Sunni leadership, which is essentially going to have no credibility because they have someone who was just being hammered on Sunni TV channels for being corrupt, and then they put him forward, and he becomes, he gets elected. Now, Abadi, of course, might have done this on purpose, because it undermines them and makes it to where they can't really oppose him, because they have no credibility. Um, uh, but the, the, the government, the Abadi government, sort of, um, I don't know if I, I, I won't call it stillborn. I mean, we'll see who he sets up as the defense minister and interior minister. But the fact is, it's it's starting off. This is starting off from a very weak point, um, and he's got a he's got a steep um, hill he, uh, he's going to have to climb here. Uh, it matters a great deal who the defense minister and interior minister are, uh, and but but as far as you know, the Sunni ministers, you know, they're they're just really lacking in credibility at this point. I would say they have almost no credibility. So the fact that there are Sunni ministers in the government doesn't really mean anything. Uh, the Kurds, incidentally, got a couple of ministries. So um, actually, they got three, I believe, uh, at least two. I'm just looking because the list are just coming out, and this this went through very quickly. I, I watched the the session live, but they got the finance ministry. That's the main thing. Um, that's the only one uh, with you know any. Real power, and now the finance ministry doesn't have a lot of discretionary authority, um, but nonetheless, it's considered to be a power ministry of sorts. Um, so, uh, and they also have the the the, um, the culture ministry, uh, you know, for 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 whatever that's worth. Um, so, you know, we'll see. But right now, it's it's not uh, an auspicious start. Do you see that Abadi is going to have the capabilities to represent all Iraqis, or is that not going to happen once more? Well, I mean, of course not. Uh, no, I mean, you know, he doesn't. I mean, he, he um, I mean, I think the government will have fairly strong support among the Shia population. As long as, you know, among the Shia, it was always really an issue of competency and just not being corrupt. So as long as he can continue to improve services, 
And there have been some improvements under Maliki, just not, not as much as people expect over a year period. Um, you know, he, and he, he ended up inserting some ministers from Basra. There were complaints about that. And I mean, literally, this is how confused this was. Just to give you an idea, at the beginning of the session, there were no ministers from Basra. And then he literally, after complaints and someone walked out, he literally just decided on his own to insert some new ministers from Basra. Um, so he was literally making this up on the fly. Um, MPs did not get to see CVs or anything. They were just given a name. Uh, but as far as, you know, once you get outside the Shia population, Sunni Iraq, the Kurdish Iraq for sure, the Kurds especially, but, you know, Sunni Iraq as well. Uh, I mean, they're, they're not going to identify with him as, as their national leader, that's for sure. And look, looking at Iraqi politics and what's been taking place in the last couple of months with the Islamic State, ISIS, whatever you want to call it at this point, in your own research and what you've been watching with politics in the country, have you seen any way of ISIS affecting the way Shias view Sunnis in the political sphere or vice versa? Has that come up at all? Of course, absolutely. Of course, it's, it's more the fact that Sunnis have insufficiently resisted them or supported them in some cases. Um, one problem, one, one thing that was a big problem for a long time was denial. Uh, Sunnis were just enormously in denial about, about um, IS. Um, they're not really, at this point, hardly anyone's denying it at this point. Uh, but there have been you know, lots of anecdotal examples of where Sunni tribes have worked with IS. Um, most the two most egregious examples have been in Sinjar, where some local Sunni tribesmen participated in the genocide that IS was attempting to perpetrate against the Yazidis, um, where there was, and this is what prompted the U.S. intervention recently. Uh, and then also there was a massacre of unarmed um, soldiers at Camp Spiker in northern Salahadin. Um, and it, it looks, it's quite clear that some Sunni tribes there uh, collaborated with IS. Um, and, and, um, and I think it was something like 250 um, were just lined up and murdered. Um, but, but beyond that, I mean, they're, they're also at the same time, it should be said, uh, Sunni tribesmen who are fighting IS. And this is especially true for the, the Jabur tribe, which runs through Salahadin and um, and, and, and Diyala, mostly. Um, and, and there are also Sunni tribesmen in Ambar who have been fighting um, IS. So there are Sunnis on both sides of the conflict. Uh, nonetheless, the fact that the most prominent Sunni leaders have often been dismissive of IS as not being a threat or you know being sort of a boogeyman, um, that has certainly soured things. And then also even prominent leaders like Nujafi will make a distinction between IS. And they'll say, well, you know, IS, um, they're, they're the enemy. But the other Sunni insurgents, they, they have a legitimate cause. But, you know, they're, all of these insurgents are fighting the, the Shia-led government. So uh, the, 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 the division, the chasm, I mean, it's an absolute chasm. Um, the, the polarization is an absolute chasm right now. Uh, and then the insurgency plays into that. It's a feedback loop. 
So with that last statement, would you consider the possibility of a second awakening movement? Well, they're not they're they're, they're not using that term because the term awakening or sahwa um, has been taken on sort of a negative connotation. Uh, what they want is more Sunnis uh, integrated into the security services. And if Maliki had handled this correctly, I mean, at one point to stress is that under present law, Iraqi law as it is right now, governors have complete authority over all security services uh, within the province, their province, except the army. Um, but that's purely on paper. Maliki, as prime minister, completely undermined this. Um, he, he created this massive federal interior ministry, uh, which has no statutory basis. He kept the, the provincial police weak, um, and then he politicized and corrupted the army. And, and so this is, um, to a large extent, how this disaster security situation came, came, came in place. Now, one way of going forward would be to simply enforce the law uh, to put all police forces under gover the governor's authority. And there's this idea um, that's being pushed of, of a National Guard-type concept of, of governors, you know, the, like the Ambar governor, for example, having beefed up uh, provincial security forces, uh, and, and then each each province would have this. Um, whether this can actually be done and, and implemented, you know, remains to be seen. Um, this is one reason why it matters so much who the interior minister is, because, you know, the, the, the interior ministry uh, employs close to three-fifths of all uh, federal security personnel. I mean, it's much larger than the defense ministry. So um, Bader came very close, this uh, you know, Iranian proxy, uh, the Bader organization, came very close to getting the interior ministry uh, today. Um, if they get that position, then all hope goes out the window. Uh, there's no chance whatsoever that um, you know any plan for reconciliation or you know Sunni you know uh, cooperative you know cooperation at the local it's just impossible to imagine because he's basically a um, you know an Iranian proxy militia leader. Um, but nonetheless, if they if they if they get someone who's appropriately professional. Uh, in the uh, interior slot, uh, in the defense slot, uh, and then Abadi works toward reforming the institution as a national institution, the military as a national institution, uh, well, then the things could improve and that could work out. So looking at the bigger picture, with what just took place in Parliament today, what do you think Iran's reaction will be since this greatly affects them as well? Iran doesn't have any reason to be angry for sure, but nonetheless, the fact that Bader, I mean, it, this would really have been a feather in their cap. This would have capped everything to have the leader of Bader become defense minister, interior minister. That was a failure on their part, the fact that he, that didn't happen. So they'll continue pushing for that. Uh, and the militias will continue to be active regardless of what happens in terms of ministries. Uh, and that's going to be Abadi's greatest challenge. 
Uh, at the same time, I mean, this government is not anti-Iranian in any way. So this is not an ideal scenario for Iran, but it's not a, a horrible one either. Looking at U.S. involvement in Iraq, the U.S. has a vested interest in Iraq. So looking at what took place today in Parliament, how do you think the U.S. will view this? What do you think are the next steps for U.S.-Iraqi relationships with what's taking place? The United States doesn't really have a choice but to wage war against IS. The problem is, at this point, things have deteriorated so much that what we have to work with is a far worse situation than existed, you know, one year ago, especially, and then even more two, three, four years ago. So it's a good thing, obviously. I mean, my understanding is the U.S. Embassy was, you know, heavily involved in in uh, preventing Bader from taking over a security ministry. And, and we, you know, the, the Iraqi government relies on us for, for resupply for weapons. So we have um, some leverage there. Uh, and it's entirely appropriate that we exercise that. Um, you know, so at the same time, so that was a success. At the same time, uh, they, they didn't, in fact, confirm a defense or interior minister. Um, and... The efforts to reconcile the Kurds, that's that's a lost cause. Um, Kurdistan will be independent just as soon as their oil infrastructure is ready. Um, there was never any chance that Abadi was going to accept the Kurds' demands. And so the extent that the Kurds have decided to play along is because they have no alternative. Um, they don't really lose anything. Abadi was going to be elected anyway, so they really had no choice. Uh, or let's say they had no really you know, better alternatives, let's put it that way. Um, putting the federal structure back together again, if we're talking about all of Iraq, uh, this is not going to happen. If we're talking about Arab Iraq, that is something that needs to happen. Uh, but that's, that's going to be very hard as there's no real credible uh, Sunni leadership at this point. Uh, and that's, that's a big part of the problem. Uh, the, the Sunni leadership, as I discussed earlier, uh, are, are just completely dis discredited. So it's going to be very hard um, uh, to 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 sell this as a credible team. Uh, and, and let me add one more thing in terms of the U.S. role. Uh, aside from keeping um, Bader out of the security ministries, uh, you know, Abadi's task has got to be to replace over time. He can't do this overnight. Uh, replace the, the militias the Shia militias on which the state has come to rely, uh, you know, with a national security apparatus organization, a national army organization. Um, and that's, that's the aim of U.S. policy uh, should be to uh, use what leverage we have to uh, press for that. Well, I know you're joining us from overseas and quite far away, so I don't want to keep you up anymore, but I would like to give you the opportunity to potentially touch on something we might not have touched on or if you have a final thought that you'd like to share with our listeners to conclude the show. I think, um, I, I'm not sure, you know, what, what there is to add. I mean, I, I think the thing to look for next is what happens with the security ministries. That's, that's really the main thing. Uh, these other decisions, it's uh, the fact that Fadila has retained control of the justice ministry. That's unfortunate. Um, 
But, and then, you know, the fact that things didn't work out with the Kurds, that this was not what happened anyway. Um, but the, the security ministries, that's something that, that needs to be dealt with uh, one way or the other. Uh, and, and ultimately, we, we're dealing with IS, we don't really have an alternative, um, you know, but to support, whether it's the Peshmerga, the Kurdish Peshmerga, or the, the, uh, you know, the Iraqi federal government. Uh, we need to support them in some way, but we have to do so um, in a manner uh, which is which is um, uh, which 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 builds institutions in Iraq. And then the other point I would add is that this is not—it's not going to be possible to deal with IS solely from Iraq because the reason that IS became so strong is they have a base in eastern Syria, um, and so we're going to be have to be able to work with um, uh, the, the secular Sunni rebels uh, and with the Kurds, which we're not currently doing because of the, the nature of the Kurdish leadership in, in Syria. Um, but that's, that's something that we need to do, frankly. Uh, and without a, a, a fuller strategy, a real strategy, uh, without some way of dealing with IS in Syria, in their base, um, the Iraqi situation will never stabilize. And those are very wise words to end with. So I want to thank you for coming on the show, Kirk, and thank you for staying up very late with us to talk about what happened in Parliament today and the broader issues. So thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you for having me.